Well, that, my friend, is not a blue light. That is a f- blue as fuck light. That is, it's like literally breaking apart the codec on this video chat because it's that fucking blue. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Talent the Human podcast. This is your host, Jake Flores. I am today with one of my favorite friends in the whole wide world. He is our guest for this episode. His name is Koi White. He is extremely talented. He's smiling at the camera as I do this. He's an extremely talented human being. He is um, absolutely one of those people that go all the way into getting shit done when they want to get shit done. And at the same time, he can go into this little benders and say, fuck everything and not do anything for a couple of weeks. And it is because he's so talented. He's, he's musically talented. His IQ might be off the charts. And uh, he's also an athlete of sorts. So, and then he actually finds way to, to learn things based on his musical talent. That's his core area everything he does comes basically from music and like all his learning goes into that and i am honestly trying not to die laughing as i make this introduction because koi is just being a goof on the camera but here we go without further ado welcome to the show the show the show koi white <laughs> hello <laughs> it's an honor and a privilege it's an honor and a privilege as well sir for, for, for all of you guys listening, uh, I just wanted to uh, let you guys know that Koi was someone that I met in New York last year, very randomly. And I, like the universe is like doing, like the wind is blowing so, so hard right now. But anyway, um, I met Koi last year and it was one of those things where there was a group of people, I was in an event that I never thought I was gonna be at. We were on, we were in line for a pop-up shop where um, our, uh, our my, my now good friend or kind of good friend, uh, Brett Conti was in. And uh, my friend Finn Thormeyer was in line and wanted to be there because he wanted to meet Sarah Dishi and other creators and all that stuff. Um, and, and yeah, so like randomly, this yeah. guy. I mean, as the story goes, I uh, was in the midst of my full-blown startup idiocy about eight months deep into looking for a co-founder because I don't code and I'd I'd gotten deep enough to realize it was probably a bad idea for me to learn to code solely for the purpose of the startup. Uh, So I was, you know, looking for technical co-founders by going to um, startup or not startup, uh, coding bootcamp graduations. And that led to a bunch of wonderful moments, such as me going to a full stack web development bootcamp graduation, and then slowly confusing everyone uh, by being the only person in the room wearing a suit, because that's what I assumed professional people wore, and then asking these web developers to code an iOS app and telling them that I'd pay them in equity and that it was in the idea stage. So this is about where I was at in life (laughs) when one day, uh, when I had been given the just most wonderful piece of advice that maybe if I want to get a dev on board, I should like have tangible work done on my end. So I started prototyping the app UX and I would just go into the city every weekend from New Jersey and go to like a co-working space that I had uh, like a guest pass to. 
and go try and make like balsamic prototypes of this app. And one day I was catastrophically late. And then like, because I was late, the traffic was at full peak when I got in town and there was no parking. I was just peeved to Jesus and back. So I say, screw it. I'm not prototyping today. I'm going to have fun. John Hill's running a pop-up shop and I was going to interview him for this app anyway. So this works perfectly. So I ditch all the stuff that I was supposed to do to like, you know, be productive. And I go to this pop-up shop event and I go skid in line to say hi to John Hill. Um, it was John Hill, Saradici, Brett Conti, and I believe that was it at the time. Um, and in line, I meet a fellow named Sean. And Sean was a dancer, video whiz kid, uh, kid wicked on Instagram. Yes. And we get to talking. We get to talking about like John Hill stuff and what made us follow him like a couple years back. And towards the front of the line, um, we still haven't gotten there. Finn runs through. This is like a couple days before he lost his hair. And uh, he's like, yo, we're going to dig in. You want to come with us? And John was like, but I'm, I'm at the front of the, I'm at the front of the line. And he's like, great. All right. We're going to dig in by, I'll text you the address. And so Finn and everyone else in the group that I didn't know existed at that point heads out. I'm still in line with Sean. We say hi to John. That goes well. Then we try and find this dig in. I show up at the place. I walk in and I'm like, where are the, and then before I could even finish thinking that thought, I'd turn to my left and see a table of like 10 people and every single person has their own camera and gorilla pod and mic and they're all pointing them at themselves. And I was like, this, I found my family. This, these are my people. And so I pull out my gorilla pod camera and microphone and have the great idea where I suggest everyone to just like play musical chairs with their cameras and do an introduction, except um, I didn't think about when I was suggesting that, and apparently no one else got this either, that that meant every single person would have to introduce themselves 10 times for every different camera. And <laughs> so as we go around, like I slowly started getting to know people and I find out Jay's a photographer. And this is actually how I found my technical co-founder after all, was like um, Sean, who I had been in line with next to, or like waiting to meet John Hill. Sean was like, I'm a computer science student. I was like, oh, sick you want to code an app? And he was like, I should not be the person that does that, but I have a friend and I met my co-founder through that. But then Jay got some pictures of me doing bike stuff. And then I nearly killed myself doing a 360 into traffic um, with an in-case bag on. And Finn lost all of his hair in a very tragic accident the next couple of days after that. It was a great just time of metamorphosis for everyone, I think. And that's how I met Jay and then you know had plenty of sleepless photo shoot things and sunless sunrises over the course of that summer and here we are sunless sunrises yes sir those are the best still ones. getting over the fact that everyone just left me for fucking indonesia mm. <laughs> well i'm not bitter you're bitter <laughs> yes but i mean with all that um you know that that's a pretty good synopsis know, though, right? introduction yeah um the, uh, the one thing that I, I actually enjoy most and like one of the reasons why I think you and I became uh, good friends is because we were always able to have, you know, really good conversations about, you know, a multitude of things. Um, I remember when you were considering um, walking away from music school to put in, you know, all your focus into the app and, and the startup and you had that conflict. I remember you called me 
like randomly one night and I was like, oh yeah, I can, I can talk to you for like 20 minutes and two hours went by and you were still- that, Well, that was basically every single night that happened. Yeah, well, after that one time, you just, <laughs> he's like, oh, he's a good listener. So I'm just gonna call him every time. Um, <laughs> but, but no, it was, it, was, it was really interesting to go through your thought process on, on the whole thing. Um, to, to, to make that decision because you actually do have, uh, um, and, and I'm basing this on our, one of our most recent conversations, which we're not going to go into right now, but um, <laughs> and let's just call it part one of this episode and um, <laughs> the unreleased part one of this episode. But anyway. Um, attempt one rather. Attempt one, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's the, the, the fact that you, Music is like, I, I feel like music is at the core of everything that you do and who you are. Um, whether it be learning how to design things for your app, how to edit videos, how to um, do your tricks with your bicycle, like however it is that, you know, what, I, I don't even know what it is that, what, what it is that you do that is called, like, I don't know how you call it, but you well, jump things with your bike and, uh, you also do a lot of like things about, you know, training yourself and your body and exercising in different ways, right? And, you know, I remember like, when I was living in New York, we were trying to learn how to backflip and it kind of became like one of those things, like I have to do a backflip and I'm not gonna rest until I do a backflip. You don't necessarily care, but you also put in, in perspective the, uh, the fact that everything that you learn, you bring it back to how you learn music instruments and how do you learn to, to play music. And like how you you know learn to well it's it's really it can be sort of misconstrued as like the core as a subject matter but really what it mostly is is just like as a metaphor it was kind of the first foray that i had into a paradigm that worked in that way like where you learn to progress through a combination of woodshedding and introspection and learning information um as opposed to like a purely academic subject where you would just study more to get better. Yeah. Um, like seat time mattered, but seat time wasn't everything. Like you just practiced really, you know, lazily and didn't really put much thought into it. You weren't going to get anywhere either. So it was kind of the first like framework that I had to work with that all of my other interests ended up falling into in some way or another. So video evolved for me right about at the same time as music. And that has a very similar thing where seat time is an incredibly crucial factor. Like you won't just read your way into making a feature length film. You're going to have to produce a few ultra low budget shorts first and work your way up. And like, you can read all the composition theory you want for cinematography, but you just have to get out and do it. But if you just get out and do it like purely and literally like turn away from all sources of information and say that seat time is going to save you, not necessarily the case. So it's really that like music was sort of a, it, it's definitely got a, a large place in my life and uh, a large importance in, you know, the future and past. Uh, it's taking a sabbatical for the present, though. <laughs> um, but more than anything, it's it's just a really useful sort of metaphor that you can, if you understand how progression in classical music works, you probably understand every other thing that I'm doing, whether or not you think you do. So biking works in a similar way film works almost an identical way um like the physiology studying stuff and like all that sort of works in a similar way 
that's a little more academic heavy, but you still have to experiment for yourself. Um, and yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a, like a huge grounder at the moment, but it's certainly a useful lens to get like perception of how all the other things work. If you like, if, if it's easier for you to grasp relating stories through like music than it is for you to grasp relating them through jumping off the roof of a building on a mountain bike, like, cause sometimes even though, you know, the sentiment's the same, it, the, the vernacular doesn't really have the same effect. We're doing a, we're doing a 360 on the intersection of Broadway and Canal in New York City, which is kind of- Oh, was it that one? Is wow, it I was- Broadway or, I can't remember if it was Broadway and Canal or Broadway and- It uh, didn't look like a smart uh, place, wherever it, it was. It was a smart place, it wasn't. It wasn't a particularly advisable place yeah. to do a 360. But it was- I on the left and I was on the right side of traffic, so I like turned, I carved into almost a taxi and uh that was a fun moment it would have been epic to have like the recording that i got of you doing the the the, the, the flip in a way the, the twist and the mix and the reaction of the cat of the taxi driver next to you once you did it <laughs> yeah it probably would have been really apathetic and just been like ah oh, great natural selection is doing its job so <laughs> Just another day, another day in New York. Um, Aspiring Darwin Award winner. <laughs> but yeah, so the um, the one thing I I actually um, admire most um, about you your talent is your um, because like to me you're not particularly talented at one thing. You're just flat out talented. Like you have an ability and a dedication to learn. It's like it's not like you're always seeking knowledge and you're always like, Oh, if I don't learn something, you know, like I'm not going to survive. But if you find something that interests you and that, that you feel attracted to you, you put in the effort and not just like a, a like a half-assed level. Like you just say, you know what, I'm going to do this until I learn it. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone has at least heard stories or, dealt with like a kid that has ADHD or something like that. And I, I have a ADHD diagnosis. I don't really identify with like being ADHD all that much, although it's great self-deprecating humor to deploy at times. Um, but everyone knows the story of the kid that can like, it lazes off and doesn't do anything. It doesn't doing very well in school, but if they like something, you, you will not be able to stop them if you tried. And I think that's a little more prevalent than people want to believe. Uh, I certainly think that ADHD is like a much more prominent neurotype than people really give it credit for. And I know several people that I know fit like it, the, the descriptors of like behaviors exhibited by ADHD neurotypes fit like a glove on these people, but they just can't stand the negative connotations of the name so much that they like willfully ignore all the tools that have been made for people with that neurotype, um, which is really unfortunate. But, I think one of the misconceptions about it, uh, one of them is definitely the fact that it's like, I mean, it's in the name as a misconception, which is attention deficit disorder. Uh, and that's really not the case because if you've ever known someone that sort of jokingly or in the terms of having a clinical diagnosis, like exhibits ADHD tendencies, you know that they don't like have no focus. 
I'm sure they can out focus you at like something that they like by it's, multiples. It's so and true. yeah, and the reason why is because like ADHD has to do with executive function. An executive function um, is essentially the romanticized version of that is willpower. Um, humans kind of have inherently abysmal willpower compared to what we'd like to think we do, but some people have it in different ways than others. And so, whereas a neurotypical person that doesn't have an ADHD diagnosis or anything will be able to sort of delegate their attention at will, they'll be able to start a task, stop the task, and then start a different one when they know they need to switch. Um, ADHD people don't necessarily have that capacity. Now, where it makes up for it is the fact that an ADHD person can focus on something for 18 hours at a time with zero wavering like fatigue. Yeah. And that's something that the neurotypical person just can't do. Um, so there's a whole lot, there's like a gradient of nuances that makes it a lot more of a difficult and complex conversation than just like this is well, a I, mental disability or some shit that makes I, kids hard to like. I personally remember when I was growing up, um, like my, my, my teachers in school tell my mom, it's like, they don't pay attention in class. My brother and I were, um, we're twins and we're in the same classroom and they're like, she, we were both really distracted all the time. Um, and it wasn't like we were distracted with like a multitude of things. We were just mm. distracted because, well, the stuff in school wasn't really what we wanted to, to be focused on. Or the delivery but, wasn't on par with what Yeah, you exactly. Were so I, I just, there was no connection there. So, you know, a butterfly flew by and I would just go like, hmm, that's more interesting. Yeah. And I mean, that. And, and focusing the, on something completely different. So for the sake of my teacher, she's looking at me from her point of view and saying, this kid is distracted because she, I'm not focusing on what she wants me to focus. And, and that's the mis misconception. A lot of people say it's a, an attention, like you said, attention deficit. And it's not that because I honestly can focus on a lot of things when I want to, when I'm committed to something, then I'm like, okay, well, this is it. Yeah. And then suddenly when you are, you magically have like incredible reserves of focus yeah, exactly. that you can outwork anyone. Something that is not, like for example, if I go out to take photos, the world could end. <laughs> okay. Very true. A hurricane could be like <laughs> encircling me and I am lost in this because that there's, you're not going to take me away from it. Yeah. Countless times I almost, you know, got run over in New York because, well, I was too focused on my photos that I couldn't care less about the environment around me, how many cars were driving by me. And, and that's, that's just how it is. Like, and, and I, I'm glad that you touched on this point because I, whenever we, we talk about mental health and, and all these things, we you know, tend to focus on, on, on the whole depression or ADHD, not ADHD, but that's what we're talking about. But like, we're talking about, you know, depression, we're talking about um, mental stability, we're talking about mental exhaustion and, and, and all these right things that, that can actually drain you from your, from your more stable self. But also, you know, there's a lot of kids out there that are going through this and they're finding their, their themselves into this, like you said, like that, that negative connotation of this condition. And, and we need to bring light that it's not a bad thing. And, and believe me, you grow past it. Um, I, you know, I'm in my thirties and 
I don't feel it as much as I did before. Well, you also learn yeah. ways to like... Yeah, exactly. Because you learn how to control yourself and you learn how to control, you know, when and how to focus on things. But when you're 10, 12, 13, 14, you know, all the way until like 20 something, you still feel those moments where you're like, it's hard to find those, you know, that, that balance and concentration and saying, well, I really shouldn't spend 20 hours focus on something because, well, at the end of the day, it's just going to become inefficient. Okay. And that's like the downside I think I see with like that ability that we have to like to, to heavily focus is because, because we can't get out of it, we can't recognize when it's time to get out of the focus. When we're, when, when, when we, when we start, like, so imagine we're in a curve and we're going like this and then our, our focus remains high and this is going to continue to go like this, but then our efficiency because of our actual um, physical tiredness is going to go down in, a, in, in the slope because eventually you're not going to be as effective as, as you were when you started, you know, that, that focus point. Like after 10 hours, 18 hours, like whatever the time, it, at some point in that, in that space, it's going to, to start dropping off. And that's what I've noticed myself um, about when I had to like focus on a lot of things. And, but it's good that we, that we talk about it because um, a lot of kids out there, like I said, a lot of people out there are, are battling with this. And it, for me, the message is saying, hey, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Use it and learn it. Learn, learn, learn how to take advantage of it because if-, if I it, think that's, so what you just said is the more important part than like learning how to cope with it. Because for instance, if you look at the actual behaviors of people, that's for instance, uh, like party animal types versus people that always stay in or people that are really healthy versus people that are really unhealthy and like don't eat well and don't exercise or like someone that is a world-class athlete versus someone that is morbidly obese and like struggling with diabetes and stuff. What you'll find with all those people is that very rarely is there any Delta in their executive function or in their willpower as people like to think, but it's, like more often than not, overwhelmingly more often than not, um, the environment doesn't actually prod them to do whatever the opposite behavior is. So like someone that's super healthy, the reason they're super healthy is because they're not working against like, like when they go home, they don't go home to a house full of like all the worst foods in the world. And they don't have a gym that's like 40 miles away. They probably have like, if it's a world-class athlete, like trainers at their service, all the healthiest food you can imagine, always on ready. And then someone that's like on the opposite end of the spectrum has all the worst cues possible. And we think what a lot of people, especially parents and um, like maybe teachers that deal with this. And I know there's still an un just unbelievable amount of skepticism around the existence of ADHD, which I think is as much as I don't think anyone should let that sort of um, label be like this nihilistic sort of end of the world thing where they're like well i'm just adhd that means i don't have to do stuff very well i think it is kind of asinine to think that it doesn't exist like <laughs> like everyone thinks the same way is pretty ridiculous um but like it's not about controlling it or like blunting it or trying to make it go away it's about like working around it and not like putting 
like just understanding how it works and realizing that for an ADHD kid or an ADHD adult, fidgeting, the reason you do that is because the entire chemical manifestation of ADHD is a dopamine, is it, yeah, dopamine deficit. So dopamine being often misconstrued as like the reward hormone or the reward neurotransmitter, it's actually the anticipatory one. So if you give like mice, for instance, if you breed mice to not actually be able to create dopamine, they will lose all will to live. Like they won't drink, they won't eat, they won't do anything, they won't procreate. But if you like put sugar water on their tongue, their face will light up and join. They'll produce serotonin and like yeah. they'll enjoy it. That's the reward system. What they don't have is the anticipatory one telling them to actually do the thing. And that's what we have a different sort of circuitry for is the dopamine loop. So when people are fidgeting, when people are like looking at other stuff, it's to satiate that negative like delta that we have. It's to like bring it back up to par so that we can focus on stuff. And like people just think it's about like, oh, stop fidgeting or like, you know, <laughs> like it, people think it's about fixing it or like blunting it or bringing it back to normal. And no one ever like, if, if people put half the effort they do into that, into just working around the issue, the, the like amount of gains that we would get generally as a society, uh, as a society would be ridiculous, <laughs> but I digress. Um, but yeah, I think where, what this was originally going was essentially, um, <laughs> wow, that was a while ago. Uh, like as this pertains to how I do stuff and we've talked about this a bit in the past is like, I think a lot of people, and this, this happens all the time, especially with social media, because it's so easy to capitalize on people's like romanticized notions of like entrepreneurial bravado or something. Yeah. But what I, and it's a crazy how effective that is to work if you do capitalize on it. Like when I made my ad last year um, for Instagram stories saying, I dropped out of college to pursue a tech startup in New York City. And like, how many times have you heard that? Nevertheless, I had like double the click-through rates of like, a victory in any fortune 100 serving advertising agency. Um, I had like 6% click through rates for the entire summer on this fucking like story ad because I just said, I dropped out of college to pursue a tech startup. And what a lot of people take that is, and the narrative that's usually pushed by people because it's the more like sexy narrative is like, yeah, I did that because I'm bold and like, I it's sticking it to the man and I don't need school. And I, but really me, I was in music school. And the reason I left was because I knew to the degree that I was dedicated to this idea of this startup, I would have been wasting my time in music school because as a brass player, you really should practice like minimum six days a week, preferably all seven. Um, there's actually a mantra where every day you take off, it'll take twice that amount of days or twice that amount of time to get back to where you were before you took the day off or the amount of time off rather. And so like you're supposed to play about seven days a week, anywhere from two to four hours a day. If you want to be like on top of your game all the time, really consistent, that's the accepted sort of norm. Um, I was practicing in my first year of music school, three days a week about two hours for those three days and those two hours were really effectively like 40 minutes of playing because they were all in ensembles settings so like in classes where there's other sections and stuff and you have rests so i'd be in a two-hour orchestra rehearsal but i'd probably only play for like honestly 
20 to 30 minutes of that rehearsal. And that was my practice the entire week plus a lesson every Monday. That was an hour long. And so, you know, paying to go to music school and I'm not practicing like literally half the amount that I'm supposed to, not to mention the quality is abysmal because I'm not actually in a practice room, you know, like closed loop working on my stuff. I'm like practicing it through the proxy of playing music in a setting. Um, so it, it was just this realization towards the end of the year that I had to make a judgment call on, am I going to abandon this idea, this like random action sports startup idea and head full tilt in the music, which is the only way you'll get anything out of it? Or am I like honestly just fooling myself into thinking that's even possible for me? And what will then happen is I just waste all my time these next couple of years in the school and don't have enough time to pursue to the startup and they both die. And like, this is just going to be a disaster. And so choosing to leave school to pursue a tech startup, as much as it is easy to turn that into like this heroic sort of bravery, I'm going to get shit done story. It was really the only option for me because everything else led to some, some amount or all of the projects dying. <laughs> yeah. And so this is like, it was a defensive decision more than anything. And yeah. I think that's what people and I I remember the conversation you were, uh, I remember uh, clearly you were at first battling the, uh, like understanding whether you were going to waste your time or not, whether, I remember, I remember the first time you, you were considering, you were like, I have some time, I'm, I'm going to talk to my advisor. Um, was it well, do you, do you want to hear that story, how I actually made the final decision? Uh, well, I kind of, I kind of know because we, we've talked about it before. But um, I want to kind of like just skim a little bit through that because um, that's, a, that's a long story in a way. Well, it's not necessarily. I mean, I can summarize it in a couple of seconds. Right. So I essentially had a fear that there was a dogma or stigma in classical music, specifically the trombone community, because it is just small. It's small and it's kind of elitist, you know, not as much as people might think from like watching Whiplash, but it's got a, a bit of an esteem to it. And yeah. so since it's such a tight-knit community, I was concerned that the idea of leaving would be frowned upon by the establishment. And if I ever tried to come back later, it didn't matter how good I had gotten, they would just be like, oh, you're not committed enough because you, you ditched for like five years. We like, And there would just always be a negative bias towards me. So what I did was I went around to every single professional, like tenured player in orchestras that I could get to and freelancers in the New York area and all my academic advisors um, related to music. And I asked them like, hey, does this phenomenon actually exist? And they all said, no. Like, no, you can go back to auditioning in Manhattan if you want to at 29, as long as you're good enough and didn't piss away all the time since you left the scene. Like, there's no reason you can't come back. No one cares. Just play well. And I was like, okay, sick. And so basically, if that opportunity wasn't there, like if there would have been a permanent negative bias towards me for leaving I probably would have tried to set down the startup idea permanently um, and just stay head down to music and like continue the route I was going but because I found out that like you could take a hiatus make that time worth it and then come back later it was like I've said in other places like that was the only option because I was the only one that let every other option like live um, so that's what I did. And the final conversation I had was with my teacher, Colin, who's like 
was my saving grace in trombone. The only reason I'm in New York. <laughs> what, yeah, um, so that's. So you're a year removed from that position, and what do you think? Um, how do you feel basically about the uh, about the steps that you've taken? I know I know that you 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 have some strides on the startup. Um, last fall and then you kind of like lower productivity on that end on yourself because you needed you know you needed some time to work on on some stuff for your you know for your personal health and your you know stability where where do you see fit in um a, a return to music if ever um after either a disastrous failure of sprackle like losing hundreds of thousands of dollars scale failure um, or a successful exit as in like making the equal amount or more. Um, and mostly it's if I get to a logical end of Sprackle's road and there isn't a logical beginning to a new related venture, then that'll probably be my cue to be like, well, that was cool, sick. And I'll go back. But honestly, over the past year, the strength of my prediction that I will be making that comeback to the classical music scene is getting diminished pretty um, linearly, I'd say. And I still want to go back. Like I, I played trombone for the first time the other day and it was, besides being awful, it was really, it was pretty fun because uh, it's just been a while. And uh, I remember the feeling of like sitting in an orchestra section and just like playing out Pines of Rome or whatever. And it was, it was good times, but like, you know, it's just one of those things. The original reason why I went into music in the first place was because I had a, a similar dilemma about film and music. And I reached the same conclusion when I was 15 uh, through the same methods. My original dilemma was I want to go to film school and I also want to play trombone. And I don't know how you do both of those because they seem pretty incompatible. And so I asked my academic advisors, I was like, can you double major in film and music performance? And they laughed and they were like, no, 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 you can't do it. It's <laughs> like, think, as I, a- I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that things are possible, like everything is possible. Yeah, I but I- on my, on, my, on my phone screen, it's like nothing, you know, everything is possible. But here's the thing, I think- the But is it smart? <laughs> I think the time commitment to the two will kind of diminish the, uh, the quality of the effort. Yeah, well, I mean, what I didn't know at the time was that the average amount like of classes that a college student has, and this could be loosely wrong, but I think it's somewhere around three to five a week, like three to five classes. The average music student has, the, the average music performance student has like nine to 12. Like, <laughs> because you have like all these ensembles that count as half credits, even though they take two hours. So it literally would have been impossible to like get complimentary classes probably. But I mean, I that's- I had. I, I, I average about 15 to 18 credits a semester. You know, the credits are same, but to yeah, get no, but those credits, you have to have like multiples of the amounts of and classes. I had, and I had a couple of classes that were four credits because it was, you know, the class in the lab. But yeah, on a daily basis, I would have yep, three three classes a day and those classes repeated through the week 
total of like, actually, I would say five classes because I had had three classes on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And then Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would have two classes that included the labs. So, so five classes a week. And it was just like, I always felt that, well, you know, I thought it was going to be harder because, but dude, I have so much free time. It's not even funny. <laughs> but I know, I know from people that attended uh, film school my, and my friend, she went to, she went to the Art Institute of Miami for, for music engineering. And yeah, okay, she had the same amount of classes that a regular student would have, but the commitment to the projects was so much harder. She was to the point where she couldn't even finish her like history papers on time because her commitment to the to the actual projects that she needed for the school were too demanding yeah. for her time. I mean, this is sort of an aside, but just a brief insight into like why the music student has like such a ridiculous schedule is because ensembles can't really be considered anything more than like a half credit hour in most places because in an ensemble it's not that hard of a dedication it's like if you're in a class that's a typical like academic class and you're there for two hours a week or whatever then you're in the class you're taking notes and then you have assignments for the class and it's like a pretty dense experience for the time that you're there and the time you're away so music gets a little more complicated because you might be in an ensemble and it might be a two-hour block of time twice a week but you might be playing like in a brass section tell you might be playing like 30 minutes out of that two hours and just kind of sitting there for the rest of it. But you have to be there to rehearse the ensemble, but you get all the repertoire from that, which incurs like an hour a day of practice for the repertoire itself every other day of the week and those days. And then you have that on top of your normal practice room time, which should be like two to four hours a day. And so like it gets really great. So the time commitment for being an orchestral class, even though it's like, technically speaking what would that be like let, let's say you don't include warm-up and like routine exercises and stuff like that in your practice room then you're just practicing the repertoire let's say a conservative hour a day so you have seven hours plus four hours in the actual ensembles every week so you have like 11 hours a week dedicated to this thing but it only counts as a half credit hour <laughs> and so and that and you just have like shit tons of stuff like that but but um, you, but still, I digress. you still need the, the the fifteen credits to have a. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so that's why like <laughs> most music students that you would ask. Two hours uh, for credit. Yeah, that one's. Please. That's, uh, um, that's a little intense. Yeah, but I mean, all this, all this to say, like the original point was um, when I picked music in the first place. It's kind of like a full circle moment because choosing to leave music school for the startup was done on the same exact rationale that I chose to go into music in the first place. Because when I was looking at either music or film and I realized there was an ultimatum that I had to pick between one or two of them professionally, um, I went with music because that was in that situation, the only option that didn't kill the other one. So like if I, if I went with film, music would have unequivocally died because you just won't have the time commitment. And also like, I didn't want to do music to like be in a community orchestra playing like, you know, a high school grade four piece every other week. Like I wanted to be in an orchestra playing shit that I thought was really cool and really hard to play. That was the whole point of it. <laughs> um, so I, if I was going to do it, like I wanted to have a certain level of fulfillment out of it. And um, 
you wouldn't be able to do that if you're full time in film because you wouldn't have the consistency of being able to practice and you can't just like set down the horn for a year, come back and leave and, and pick up where you left off. Whereas film was a little bit more academic. Like it didn't physically require you to condition muscles um, yeah. unless you're a glide cam operator. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I could just always dick around with freelance filmmaking or something like that, or just personal projects. And then I will do music because you can be consistent about the music studies for all this amount of time. And then whenever you have free time, you can just pick up film basically where you left off. And so that means I can do both. Whereas if I go film, I'll have to let go of music. So the same rationale when I was 15 that I decided I'm going to do music was the same sort of defensive mechanism that I used to decide whether or not I was going to leave music to do the startup. And it ended up being the same situation where one option killed the other and then going with the other option, let you keep both in a way, or at least keep both doors open. And so for me, if that's just always made that option the only actual option. <laughs> Interesting. Let's talk about your modeling career. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, sorry. Sorry, that was unprofessional of me. Uh, <coughs> um, yes. <laughs> I think that's the, the I think that's the reason for your uh, mental unhealthiness. Your modeling, <laughs> the modeling career, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's definitely it. Not uh, sleeping three hours a night for an entire summer, not having a fucking clue what sleep does. <laughs> no, that's <Definitely>. um, <laughs> you've actually gone through that. You've gone through the whole process of not or not process, but like. It's called a process of of not of depriving yourself of sleep. I went through the the, the phase of having that naivete to think that all the people parading their lack of sleep were actually like being candid in the amounts that they were getting and for the lengths of time. Like when you hear someone say, "Yeah, no, I slept two hours a night for two weeks in a row, like every night. That was my max, and I was fine, and I got the thing done." You're like. Well, they survived. I have plenty of a surplus of health to work with because I've been doing keto for a year and fasting and take care of myself. So fuck sleep. Why don't we do this for a third of our lives anyway? Well, it's probably just a, a mistake of evolution, I'm sure. There's there's probably no function for it. So I, I did the dumbest shit. Last year, I uh, like somewhere around the middle of the summer, I felt slightly behind. <laughs> and uh, so my logical conclusion was like, you know what I'm going to do? And this is actually uh, a concept that I later found out was a real thing, and it's called sleep opportunity, but I did it backwards. So uh, Matthew Walker uh, is the professor of neuroscience or you know, five different things related to neuroscience at UC Berkeley, formerly at Harvard, graduated Cambridge, I think. Oh, I don't want to get that wrong. Anyway, uh, super smart dude, has been the foremost researcher in sleep studies for the past two decades, just wrote a like, New York Times bestseller on sleep for laymen, and has been doing a lot of press for it. He gives himself what he calls a non-negotiable eight-hour uh, sleep opportunity. And that means he is in bed with the opportunity to sleep for eight hours. If he doesn't get a full eight hours, fuck it. It's fine. But he has a non-negotiable opportunity for those eight hours. So I kind of, I, I was on to that idea slightly, but I kind of bastardized it as much as possible with it looking sort of similar. I said, I'm going to only have the opportunity to sleep between midnight and six with no obligation to. So that meant I didn't have to sleep between midnight and six. I just was not allowed to sleep outside of it, which led to me like typically going to bed at two in the morning and waking up at six until my body 
literally refuse to. And I've told you this story. I've told other people this story. And some people don't believe it until I actually show them the alarm clocks. But I had a series of three alarm clocks offset by as close as I could get them to a minute each. One was on my desk. Another one that went off a minute later was on top of a door across from my bathroom in a hallway because that was a precarious place where I'd have to be somewhat conscious to turn it off without just like having it fall over and break. And then the last one was by my phone in the living room with an energy drink as a prize next to it. And it was the loudest one with like actual metal bells and a hammer. It got to the point where zero out of 10 times, I would actually stay awake after turning off the third alarm. I would just fucking zombie walk back to my room, pass the fuck out for another five hours. And I started missing appointments like 10 for 10. I don't think it got to 10 before I stopped doing this, but it was like, I, I had to reschedule one appointment and then I missed another appointment and then I missed another appointment with the same person. And then I was about to miss it a fourth time, but just drank like 900 milligrams of caffeine in that day and then made the appointment and then decided there's something wrong here. <laughs> this is probably slightly exceeded the threshold of sustainability. Um, and then I decided, uh, no, I, I got like sick or something. Something happened where, oh, I know exactly what happened. I had the bright idea to do a water fast. It was like a three-day water fast or dry fast or something. What that equals is you can't have coffee. Yep. What that equals is for the first time in six months, I wasn't averaging 500 milligrams of caffeine a day, aka massive migraines and headaches, extreme like unrelenting fatigue. I felt like I was dehydrated no matter how much water I drank. It was awful. I couldn't get out of bed for like three days. And then I realized is this and like I googled and I had a bunch of ancillary side effects too like I hated everyone and all that sort of stuff and I like at par for par I looked up three different articles and like in order on the article symptoms of caffeine withdrawal it was like those but if you reworded the description of the sentence the, the, the symptom to be like 10 times more ridiculous than it actually was supposed to be for normal people going through caffeine withdrawal that was what I <laughs> and so it's interesting because I did a water fasting before I ever started drinking coffee. I think I was like mm -hmm. 21 and the 20, no, I was like 23. And cause I didn't start drinking coffee until my 24th, 25th birthday. And, uh, hmm. yeah. And <clears throat> it's a story. I started with Cuban coffee. So it was just like, it was all downhill from there. And then I went to work for Starbucks and well, nice. Um, I was not always the, the coffee snob that I am today, but, um, before I, you know, I used to like do those water fastings, like kind of like, I, th I think I did like two or three, at, uh, in my twenties and, and it was all before coffee. And then I remember, I think it was like four or five years ago, I decided to do one. And of course I didn't have coffee. And I got, I was like, oh, the water fast, I, you know, I love those. Those are great. Enter coffee. You know, had I been like a white dude, I might have gone shooting people around because <laughs> I was mad. <laughs> oh dear. You know, yeah. it's like I had to be socially incorrect sometimes. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. No, I mean, you know, it was a it's an ill-advisable thing, and I I like. I don't know, maybe other people just see the writing on the wall that I don't, but I was listening to interviews of like Elon Musk where he was saying like, yeah, I would drink about eight cups of coffee a day and then eight Diet Cokes. And that I think amounted to something around like, 
a gram of caffeine a day, which is just fucking ridiculous. And he said he only stopped because he started losing his peripheral vision. I think this was actually this was actually what I had watched or read before I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna only allow myself to sleep before midnight and or after midnight and before six AM. Um and I have a vlog where I like I I in editing because it was really simple to do I just reenacted a moment where I was sitting up and lost consciousness and then went like back to being awake and there's periods of that where like I think everyone's experience was called a micro sleep which is like where your eyelid closes just over your pupil and you have like this weird sort of delusional moment of dreaming almost and you go back to being awake I didn't have dreaming it was literally like like fading like black in the corners and then nothingness tinnitus which I have normally slightly, but like it was, uh, you just heard like ringing <laughs> somewhere around like 30,000 Hertz and it would come back. And, uh, and that happened and I was recording when it happened. And so I was like, this is bad. And so the next thing I do in this fucking vlog is I open up a sugar-free Red Bull because I'm still keto at this point because I want to stay healthy. <laughs> I've, never, I've never put Red Bull in healthy. Yeah, yeah. You know what you don't also put in healthy? Excising sleep from your diet of living for like a six-month period of time. You know what the most like annoying part of all that was? What I didn't know at the time was that sleep, um, this is a fun little fact, no species ever has been observed to seemingly forego sleep for no apparent reason. So there's no fail-safe, there's no contingency plan inbuilt by mother nature for being sleep deprived the only physiological conclusion that your body and like endocrine system will come to is that there, there's a crisis at hand i mean your cortisol raises and like glucocorticoids and all the neurotransmitters associated with stress because if you're awake it's probably because you're about to starve to death there's a, an immediate threat of predation or something to that effect and so all of these stress responses your sympathetic nervous system goes crazy and what happens when your sympathetic nervous system goes crazy for a prolonged amount of time is your amygdala actually grows in size and your prefrontal cortex atrophies so prefrontal cortex is associated with executive function that thing i'm already really shit at <laughs> so i'm literally atrophying the thing that's already like not quite sufficient in myself and upregulating this hyper impulsive part that's already a problem and just doing that over a six-month period at full sprint the entire time and turns out that doesn't go very well and so that led to like a six-month period of burnout and you know a little bit of an existential crisis and then beating myself up until I realized like no nope, no I just need to that was a mistake and now I just need to like fix the damage or at least make up I mean, it some makes of it. happy that you went through that <laughs> yeah I mean it's one of those things it's been by all means a net positive for yeah. having done it I have the experience. Well, okay, I, maybe I wouldn't say net positive, but now I'm wiser for it. I've appreciated the importance of this thing that we do for a third of our, you know, existence. And I'm glad that it's a 21-year-old guy saying these things and not me. Because here's the thing. <laughs> if someone that's listening to this who is in their 20s or a teenager might kind of say, well, what is this 30-year-old guy talking about? Why would you know, he doesn't know shit? But here's the thing, because, you know, I'm not Gary Vaynerchuk or Elon Musk or anyone of like, <laughs> high praise. So I can't, I can't just, you know, deliver this message. But here's the thing. If there's someone relatable, 
like, and you experience this. And like, my advice to people is like, this is one of those things that you can skip. You can learn from the mistakes of others. Learn, yeah, this... learn from our friend Koi. You don't have to experience this. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I think the thing is a lot of people don't really can like, I just had this incredible, like, I guess, innocence and in where I just assumed everyone was telling the truth about how little they slept and I went along with it. And then I found out how absolutely fucking ridiculous that is. Well, not everything you see on the internet is true. Yeah, well, not only that, but just like, if it is, that's not a good thing. You should not be proud of that. That's some dumb shit you're doing to yourself. And here's the, like, the most ludicrous part of it all is the prefrontal cortex, which is that thing that, like, basically you're slowly killing by doing this, sleep deprivation for a chronic period of time, doesn't finish developing until 25. So every night when someone that's like an adolescence or late teenager, early 20-year-old, or early 20s year old, whatever, um, <laughs> every time they sleep, they have to do everything a 26 year old does, plus grow and develop like neural pathways, like, and not just memory and connection, but like actually develop a part of the brain in addition to all the repairs that have to be done during sleep, which is why uh, like adolescents have to sleep like really about nine to 10 hours instead of eight. Um, and this continues going until you're 25. So all these like young buck entrepreneurial types that are like, just going to go out and crush it every day and wake up at 5 a.m. and not really care about what they do on the backside of that, like not go to sleep any earlier. Just, they're just going to wake up at 5 a.m. Like this is irreparable damage once you've locked in that timestamp of 25. Like if you like really just truly honestly fuck yourself from like 20 to 25 doing this, and even on a lesser scale. So I went so like absolutely ridiculously deep into this that I burnt out almost in probably record time in about six months. But if you do this slowly at just a barely sustainable threshold, sustainable not in the sense that it's actually sustainable, but in the sense that you can continue to do it without having like a visceral involuntary you, kickback. You, you, you go in this direction instead of this direction. So it's like, if you do it sustainable- Yeah, if you just have a slow decline, then you can, like, the, the worst part about that is then you lock in the amount of, like, foregone development of this wonderful thing called the prefrontal cortex that we have. Like, that's why we're humans and, like, dominate the earth is because we have the ability to empathize, which is predominantly a function of the prefrontal cortex. We have a, an ability to, like, forego gratification to an extremely high extent because we understand the possibility of a greater future payoff. We have the ability to perceive ourselves in multiple hierarchies and then use that as like finding meaning in life. You just like all of this, you just shit on. If you like go this super bravado entrepreneurial thing of like, fuck sleep, I'm gonna wake up early because that invents time and there's no detriment. Why doesn't everyone do this? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Do you think that the, the, the pace by which everything happens today, like I, I, I've become kind of like, so I remember, I remember my dad and my mom at the age that I'm in, okay? Because I was, I don't know, like 10, something like that. And I, I just, I don't think of my parents the way that I see myself and like my cousins that are around my age or even older 
art today. And, and then I see the way that I was in my 20s compared to like your generation in your 20s. And I see myself when I was a teenager compared to the generations of, of teenagers today. And I feel like things are happening so much faster now. Um, growth and, and development happen faster that I honestly think that when you're in your 20s, you're not, you're not done with adolescence today. You're, you know, adolescence. Well, like, you literally aren't until you're 25. Like, developmentally speaking, you're not until yeah. you're 25. <laughs> no, and like, and, 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 and I, I won't think about like from, from the entire physiological aspect of things, because here's the thing. When I was 15, my decision making about things were, was very limited. I, I just didn't really have to worry about much. And, and, I, and I know 15 year olds today have this added pressure in a way of like, well, things are happening faster. Technology advances too much faster. And I, I need to make decisions as to what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. And, and that's, that's something that's like, to me it's kind of crazy, you know? Like I was, you know, when I was 15, I was just like living life, you know? Yeah. And I mean, and when I, was, when I went to college, I was just like, you think the day I went to college, do you think the, the one thing in my mind was like what I was gonna be doing after I graduated? No. I mean, I knew I was going to school to, to be a doctor, but I just, no, like that thought wasn't there. And it was just sort of continuing. Exactly. And like now you see things are, you know, a lot different because, well, technology moves faster. And if you're not on top of things, like, I, dude, honestly, between my 16th birthday and my 20th birthday, Technology changed so much, but at a very, you know, like maybe. It, Moore's it, law took things from two to four rather than like 2000 to 4,000. Yeah. So like, so I was 16 in 98 and 20 in 2002, at, 2000, at the end of 2002. And, and from 2003, to 2006, you know, we started getting the development and the, and the birth of social media with MySpace, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, all these companies that started to pop up, right? And then came the iPhone. From the first cell phone I had when I was 16 to the iPhone, the development wasn't that great. But from iPhone, from the first generation iPhone, from the first smartphone to where we are today, it's almost the same amount of time. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I remember the first iPhone started in the eighties and, and you can like, if you like, it, it's just the, the speed of technology allows people to to like grow faster and have to like worry about things faster that I don't, I, I think we are like, I, I don't even like some people say like, Oh, when you get to the prime of your life, I'm like, I'm still figuring shit out. I'm still trying to do things and like working on, 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 on a lot of things in my life that like, I don't like, I remember 
I remember my parents at 36, 38 years old, like they were like, you know, everything was set, you know, like life was just like, if you weren't, if you didn't have your life set up by the time you were like 25, 28, you weren't really. And, and now you have people like me, like I'm still, and I don't feel any different. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I one of the things that seriously, as, as, as people did back when I was, you know, 12. Yeah. I mean, if you have ever seen like the difference between the stress levels of someone like in a very small town, that's sort of, you know, suburban in a state without like, you know, their own version of having an Atlanta or New York or LA or Dallas or Houston or whatever. Um, like something that's pretty secluded, the difference between the type of stress that the person has in that small town and the type of stress that someone has in like New York City is just kind of on a basis of what they have to deal with in context. So someone in the city has like, like immeasurably larger networks of people to funnel in information socially that they have to consider in all their decision making. They have career choices out the bejesus that they have to consider like every step that they make in. Whereas like someone that's, you know, got a state job in Podunksville, wherever, like they don't really have a lot to consider. Like that's why a lot of these places just sort of rant about politics all the time because there's not a lot of complexity for them to actually have to ingest and analyze and like make decisions on. And so having the liberty of information and, you know, connecting a whole array of like it's like another literally another dimension of information or people or or different things to solve new problems at a faster rate or make smarter decisions yeah. also well, inherently with a backsided sort of compulsion to to make smarter decisions and so like someone can have what seems like a much trivial like a much more trivial decision to make in a city setting but because it's so much more loaded by all the other considerations that they actually have the ability to be aware of, it's going to be a much more stressful thing than like someone in a suburban area that doesn't really have a lot of factors to consider other than like, you know, the 14 people that they know there. And like, no, that's, um, so that's so true. I, I've seen that even uh, like outside of the U S like um, I've noticed that in certain places in Germany where I've been to, where like you can see the communities, you can see the, the behavior of people compared to like Berlin or Frankfurt, like even Munich, um, even though it's a great city, it's a beautiful city, it's just a lot different than, than say Berlin um, from that perspective. And, and, and you see the same in the US, like if you go to, I don't know, Raleigh, North Carolina, compared to um, you know, Atlanta or Dallas, or you know, if you go to San Diego in, in, in LA, and San Francisco and New York. Or Welch, Chicago, West Virginia versus Los Angeles. <laughs> Lexington, Kentucky. The, you know, the center. Yeah. But I mean. Kentucky, like that's nothing compared to like, say, you know, New York or even, uh, you know, a smaller yeah, city. But, it, but also like the, the point in this is like that is no longer the sole delineation. Like I think one of the reasons everyone's sort of had this move and it's interesting because if you look at the u.s like suicidality versus a place that like i, I forget what this place is but it's like some i want to say east asian um civilization of people that has like all sorts of like war happening and you know 
disease and poverty and whatever. And like everyone's basically on the very last thread of existence all the time, every day there, but they have no suicide. They don't really have a perception of the outside world. They don't really have the ability to perceive themselves um, in hierarchies that are larger than is practical. Like you and I can perceive ourselves on a social hierarchy that leads all the way up to like literally Elon Musk. Like we can compare ourselves based on really just absolute bullshit posted on social media and be like, well, I'm basically at the bottom of this hierarchy and then like inflict a ton of self, you know, loathing and shit based on the relativistic like positioning that we've just determined we're in in this social hierarchy that doesn't actually exist. Like we're not actually in a practical hierarchy with like all of our idols typically. Um, but like the thing is in the same way that maybe 20 years ago, you'd have that sort of safe, like incubating place where people yeah. kind of had a restriction and a bottleneck to outside information, all this other things you consider to stress them out and, you know, or to compel them to make the best possible fit for the future of their lives. Like complacency was much more acceptable because that was kind of all you had to really work with. But now you have all the tools at your disposal that you could ever ask for to not be complacent, which kind of has like a back edge to the sword, which is now all these people feel like if they are being complacent or they don't absolutely optimize for the best fit in their career and the best possible, like, you know, squeezing of every last drop of talent or potential that they have out of them, that they failed because they should be able to, because they have all the resources to, whereas before if they didn't have the resources, or any of the awareness that half the things that exist that were a better fit for them, either career-wise, location, you know, socially speaking, they had no idea those things did exist and there was no reason to like loathe about not having them or doing them. And so I think that the wonderful liberation that is the internet has also come with this other sort of ass end of it that's kind of the compelling aspect of making people aware that they don't have to be complacent is making them either like guilt trip themselves or feel really inadequate if they don't then make the change to like absolutely optimize every single part of their social professional and otherwise like aspects of their lives all right one final question <laughs> how did you still how do you stay mentally healthy um well, I'm sleeping a lot now, which is good, because it turns out that's like one of the best free therapists that you can ever ask for. Um, I actually have like uh, the best like consumer grade sleep tracking hardware that you can get, which is the Aura Ring. And both of the longevity and sleep scientists that I follow are investors and advisors to that company. Um, so that's a big thing. I try to adhere to the ketogenic diet which funny enough has been a pretty reliable proxy for how well I'm adhering to sleep because on a one-to-one -one level, as my chronic exhaustion and fatigue progressed, my adherence to like diet diminished like almost exactly in tandem. Um, so yeah, sleep sort of like become first because fixing sleep makes everything else easier to fix. And then, Diet helps me specifically because if I'm on the ketogenic diet, I have massive improvements in executive function and also just clarity of mind. And I know people like say that like parrots now because everyone's doing keto. But like two years ago when I started it, I remember the difference was like made absolutely not placebo for me. 
because I recorded a five minute, like totally succinct first attempt description of what I knew of the ketogenic diet at that point. And if I would have done that two weeks before I started, that would have been like 20 takes, probably a full 64 gigabyte memory card. And then ultimately I would have given up and never actually recorded that description. Um, And so I get like an incredible benefit from that, uh, which helps because then I can, you know, I'm not using so much mental energy to just get through the, the noise into the signal. I actually don't have to, I can reallocate that energy to figuring out the problems that the signal is giving me. Um, introspection is a really important thing. Uh, one of the things that I think is kind of ironic about the self-help entrepreneurial space is, you know, everyone's like, don't go to like a therapist or like, don't do whatever to fix you. Cause you have to do the work yourself to read all these books. And then everyone reads all the books and then, and you get all the information that you need to do the work you need to do. But then everyone keeps thinking that the, the fix is going to come in this land shifting epiphany that they read in a book. And it's and like in the same right that everyone wants to help themselves because like no one else is going to do it for them. And like, there's this whole bravado culture around that. It's ironic that like a lot of people in that same space just sort of default to being like, Oh, well, if you're having trouble with this sort of existential crisis or this, you know, depression or whatever, just read this book. That's all you need to do. <laughs> like don't actually, you know, have a regular meditation routine or, you know, address the actual like external reasons for your mental issues. Just read more books. And so I think something that people should really consider is whether or not they've read enough books. <laughs> Whether or not it's time to actually like employ the information that they've gotten, think about it, apply it to themselves, and then do the work that needs to be done to actually get out of whatever mental state they are. Um, so true, right? <laughs> like music to my ears. Um, yeah. yeah, no, there's only so much. This is it's only so much books you can read and so much information you can take. At the end of the day, yeah. if you need help, sometimes the best the best solution is to ask um you know for that help and like if you're in the book the one thing i see about about that solution at that moment when you're reading the book you know to find you know the help that you need with something it's like well it is your judgment of the information that you're reading you're not getting you know someone else's perspective or or point of view that can actually bring that help that you need and i think that's a it's a very good point that you make there i think it's a good um, i mean ending point here for for us in the podcast and um it's uh it's uh, yeah it's i think it's great um i want to thank you for for taking the time again <laughs> <laughs> to do this um i know the the first time we tried this um it became more of a of a yeah i don't know what it was I just... it was one of those things where we had the uh that great enjoyment of like catching up because we had, you know, we had spent so much time, um, you know, without speaking and uh, we, we try to turn our first conversation in like six months into, into a podcast recording and that didn't work out. Um, this is so much better. Um, maybe, maybe at the end of season one, we'll release some of the clips of the other conversation. Cause I think oh, it's God. so many good spots in there. Um, <laughs> and like, there's some, there's, there's a lot of valuable information in it. It's just such a, freaking mess up 
BS. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, we had a couple of those 20 minute asides here, but we brought it back. And in that well, one, it was yeah, like, like, I think the 20 minutes were, were, were actually relevant to the conversations that we were having on the other episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, you know, again, thank you so much for being on this episode. I think we actually hit the nail on, on a lot of things that I wanted to cover. Um, and, uh, and you helped me cover, you know, the topic of ADHD, which I love that we, that we had an opportunity to cover that. Um, and yeah, I guess, um, this is it, uh, for the podcast. Thank you for being in on being on the podcast. Yes. Being on the, being in the podcast, you were in, in the podcast, in the podcast, you're like in the matrix of the whole thing, but uh, yes. thank you. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fruitly my pleasure. My good sir.